0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. You know, when you work in radio, you get a lot of comments about your voice. It sort of comes with the territory. Every now and then, someone says to me, you know who you really sound like? Alan Alda. I get that all the time, and you know what? I will take it. But once in a while, when the speaking voice is that of a woman, the comments have a different tenor to them. Usually, they have to do with something called vocal fry. Someone who gets these kinds of comments a lot is Johanna Mayer, host of our podcast Science Diction. Hey, Johanna. Hey, Ira. Okay, vocal fry. What exactly is it?
2: It's when your voice drops down into a lower register, and it takes on almost a creaky quality, kind of like this. And a lot of people really, really do not like it.
0: Huh. You know, I hear lots of people speaking with vocal fry, but it's never really bothered me.
2: Well, that's the thing. It's not like vocal fry is anything new. Linguists have been studying it for decades, but it's really just in the past few years that everyday people have started paying attention to it and hating on it. So when I started getting all of these emails and angry tweets about my voice, it got me thinking, where did this fixation on vocal fry come from? And also... Is there anything maybe good about it?
0: Which brings us to your story.
2: Before the last decade, Vocal Fry lived a relatively quiet existence. It was known to linguists, speech and language specialists, maybe the occasional vocal coach. But it really didn't get much public attention. I mean, it was around. The Kardashians were a few seasons deep. Britney was post-circus. Kesha had just done her get sleazy worldwide tour. But then in 2011, a study came out. A team of linguists at Long Island University looked at 34 college students, all of them women, and found that about two thirds of them used vocal fry. And I don't know exactly what it was about this study because it wasn't like there hadn't been studies on vocal fry before. Maybe it was just timing that it was giving a name to this thing that people had suddenly started noticing. But something about this study struck a chord.
1: It's something called vocal fry that is creeping into the speech patterns of young women. NBC's chief medical editor, Dr. Nancy Snyderman, is here to explain. Explain away, because I've never heard of this. Well,
3: it's a new term, Matt, and a lot of people, I think, probably haven't heard about it. But you...
1: At the
2: time of this Today Show episode, Vocal fry was still a pretty obscure term, but that was about to change. Have you ever looked at a FedEx truck and noticed how the blank spaces between the E and the X make a little arrow? After I noticed that for the first time, I could not unsee it. That's what this newfound fascination with vocal fry was like. It had existed in plain sight for years and people just hadn't really noticed it. But once they did, they realized they hated it. It's girls who talk like that and adopt that, it, but it's not you their mean like fault. They're like wi- grown women. Grown that talk
0: women, them. and yeah. it's they're
4: victimized. They have fallen prey to something.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's annoying. I mean, it's really annoying.
5: It's so it's talking really high, and then it's also the affectation, which is the fry and up talking.
2: The general consensus was that vocal fry was a trendy thing, that young women were basically just trying to sound like Britney Spears and Kesha. And then in 2015, there was an episode of Fresh Air.
1: Let's get to the glottal fry, also known as the vocal fry, demonstrated for us.
2: It's when you're kind of down here. Typically, it occurs at the end of a sentence when you're finishing what you're saying. Terry Gross is interviewing Susan Sankin, a speech and language pathologist, and they're talking about all the different issues she helps her clients address. The pathologist is clearly not a fan of the fry and how it makes women sound, but She actually takes it a step further. What they don't realize is how harmful it could be to your vocal cords. You're really fatiguing and straining them. You're putting them in an unusual position. And it'll be interesting to see in the near future how many of these women end up in ENT offices with vocal pathology. So vocal fry, not just annoying, not just sabotaging your career. It's actually doing you physical harm. And that's when the linguists all got involved. Lisa Davidson is the chair of the linguistics department at NYU.
5: And in fact, that's when I joined Twitter because I wrote a letter (laughs) to Fresh Air at the time. And that's, yeah, that's when I decided it was probably a smart time for me to
2: join social media. In her letter, Lisa argues that vocal fry is actually not a problem at all. And that this pathologist and other people who hate it, they're just intolerant of how young women speak. And actually pretty ill-informed about the basics of fry. So let's clarify that. What is it? Like, what's happening in my throat when I use vocal fry, also known as creaky voice? The vocal folds are vibrating much more slowly. They're vibrating more irregularly and somewhat more loosely. Sometimes this just happens when you're running out of air. So a lot of times where we
4: find creaky voice, especially in a language like English, is at the end of a sentence.
2: Now, as to the allegation that it's damaging the vocal cords, well, it's pretty interesting, considering all the languages that actually use vocal fry. In many Southeast Asian languages and indigenous languages in Central America, vocal fry isn't a bug. It's a feature In some languages, just adding a tiny bit of fry changes the actual meaning of a word. Or languages like Cantonese, where the pitch of a word changes its meaning. Vocal fry can help speakers reach those lower tones. And it can help listeners understand which tone is being used. Just makes it a little more distinctive. But what about in English? When linguists first described it in English, it wasn't about women at all. It was about men. In fact, according to a linguist in the 60s, it was something that upper-class British men did, presumably to convey their superior social standing. And judging solely by this one clip of Benedict Cumberbatch, this is still very much a thing.
5: You've got a brother who's worried about you, but you won't go to him for help because you don't approve of him, possibly, because he's an alcoholic more likely because he recently walked out on his wife. And I know that your therapist thinks you're limp psychosomatic quite correctly, I'm
2: afraid. I mean, that was basically one long, confident croak. And in the UK, historically at least, it seems vocal fry wasn't happening nearly as much in women. In the 80s, one survey found that it was as much as 10 times more common in men. And again, specifically upper-class types. And yet, note the curious lack of public outrage or fretting over whether Benedict Cumberbatch could secure any more acting work, afflicted as he is with the voice of a fancy frog. In the U.S., there's evidence that young women use vocal fry more than men, at least among college students in the small studies that have been done. And as we know, people are very much complaining about it. So... Maybe it's how North American women are using fry that's getting people worked up. In English, vocal fry obviously doesn't change the actual meaning of a word the way it can in other languages, but it might convey other meanings, subtler ones. There's some research on this, and none of it is conclusive. Some studies suggest that women use vocal fry when talking about emotional topics. Others say it's a thing we do when we're bored or even when we're trying to project authority. So why do people hate it? Maybe they hate when women sound emotional, bored, or authoritative. That's one theory. But here's the simpler one. Sexism. When we criticize the way someone's voice sounds, not what they're actually saying, it's because on some level, we just don't like who they are, their age, their class, their race, their gender. To me, criticizing vocal fry just feels like making fun of someone's accent, like a cheap shot. When we say, I can't tolerate the sound of her vocal fry, it sounds to me like what we're really saying is, I can't tolerate the sound of a young woman talking on the radio. But you might want to get used to it, because how women talk, it tends to catch on. Many years of sociolinguistic research has shown that just about every change that you see in language is found first in women, right? Often young women. This is widely accepted among linguists and sociologists. When it comes to speech and language, young women tend to be ahead of the curve. And that's been true for centuries. In the early 2000s, two linguists looked at thousands of letters from the early modern period— and found that women were way more likely than men to mix things up with new linguistic forms. Like dropping the ye. Women started using you earlier than men. And hath, women switched to the modern has earlier too. If there's one rule of language, it's that it changes. And if there's another rule of language, it's that some people get very annoyed when it does. So what to do? Do I get a voice coach? Do we hire Benedict Cumberbatch to croak on my behalf? Do listeners who don't like my voice just turn it off? I'd like to propose another solution. Look inward. Why is it that a simple creak in my voice sounds immature, stupid, grating, or like, quote, a spoiled teen? Why is how I say it more important than what I say? And if your answer is, well, look, I like women, and I don't want to find this annoying, but I just truly, genuinely do, I'd like to prescribe this solution. Exposure. Because there's nothing inherently wrong or annoying about Fry. If there was, much of Denmark would have to collectively turn off their ears. Yes, creaky voice is a feature of Danish. Like most things in life, we get used to him with exposure. So if you're looking to solve this problem, here's my offer. Just listen. Listen to the radio, listen to podcasts, to audiobooks, to Britney Spears and Kim Kardashian and women on the radio. Listen to your niece, your brother, your boss. Listen to yourself and listen to voices like mine because in time, I think you'll start to hear us a little differently. And you might even like what we have to say.
0: That piece was produced by Kevin McLean, Johanna Mayer, and Ella Feder, And you can hear more stories like this on our podcast, Science Diction. Thank you, Johanna.
2: Thank you, Ira.
4: The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science.
4: This is for
1: WWNO, St. Louis Public Radio. Iowa Public Radio News.
0: Local science stories of national significance. If you live out West, water has probably been on your mind a lot over the last few years. States have had to deal with drought conditions, and a world where there's not enough water to go around seems to be getting more real every day. If you're part of a Western tribal nation, the issue of water access is even more dire. That's because Indigenous peoples have long been left out of conversations about how to divvy up resources. In the Colorado River Basin, leaders from 20 tribal nations are now asking the federal government for a seat at the table. Joining me today to break down the complications of water rights in the West is my guest, Michael Elizabeth Sackis, climate and environment reporter for Colorado Public Radio based in Denver. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a little context, if you will. Who are the players that get their water from the Colorado River
4: Basin? The Colorado River starts in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and it flows through the Southwest until it reaches Mexico. And along the way, seven states and 30 federally recognized tribes use this water for ranching and recreation, and of course, drinking water. And even cities outside of the Colorado River Basin, like Denver and Los Angeles, rely on this water, which in total supplies around 40 million people. It also provides electricity for the West through the turbines that spin at hydroelectric dams along the river.
0: Wow, so people really are dependent on the river. Tell us what the state of the river is now.
4: What's happening in the basin is quite alarming. The two largest reservoirs in the United States are Lake Powell and Lake Mead. They're both filled with Colorado River water, and they both hit their lowest levels on record this year. The water levels dropped so low, the federal government declared the first ever shortage on the Colorado River in 2021, which means cuts to some water users next year. The average flow of the Colorado River has dropped about 20% since the 1900s, and roughly half of that decline is due to climate change. And these hotter temps have helped fuel a 20-year mega drought across the West, a mega drought is essentially a drought that can last decades. And this wow. rapid decline in the river could soon cause problems between the states that share this water.
0: Now, wasn't there an agreement almost 100 years ago for managing the water that was created? I mean, what does this agreement say, and is it still relevant?
4: Yeah, the agreement is called the Colorado River Compact, and it essentially divided up the water in the river so each state knew how much water it could use to fuel their growth and development. The states in the upper part of the basin get this much, and the states in the lower part of the basin get this much. And the agreement says those upper basin states have to keep a certain amount of water in the river so it can flow to those downstream states.
0: But, of course, this was crafted long before droughts caused by climate change was a reality, right?
4: Yeah, right. When this compact was signed 100 years ago, the states didn't consider that the climate could change and that the river would dry up as much as it has. And when the states divided up this water, they didn't use percentages. They actually used fixed numbers on how much water each state could use. I spoke with Brad Udall, a water and climate scientist with Colorado State University, and he said that's what might soon cause the issues between the states.
1: The fatal flaw of the compact is currently written are these fixed numbers in there. You can't have fixed numbers in a declining system. That's going to unduly impose pain on a party that's completely undeserving and never signed up for that.
4: Because the river has dried up so much, there's a chance that part of that 100-year-old agreement between the states could be broken soon, because it might mean the states in the upper part of the Colorado River Basin can no longer send down the amount of water to the lower basin states as agreed to in the compact. That could lead to court battles between states and some water users being cut off from the river.
0: Speaking about broken agreements, let's talk about the indigenous tribes from the very beginning. Were they included in this agreement?
4: No, when the compact was signed, the 30 tribes in the Basin were not included in the agreement. And tribal leaders say the legacy of that racial injustice continues to hurt their members today. Biddebecker is a member of the Navajo Nation and an associate attorney for the tribe's utility. Tribal people living on reservations didn't even get the right to vote in Arizona until 1948. You know, a whole generation or two after the compact signed. So even this concept of who are tribes, what are tribal people... How do they fit into our system? I think they were unresolved then. And I think that's what we're still trying to resolve to this day. Since the compact was signed, states have had to renegotiate how to better manage the Colorado River in a drier reality. And the tribes have been excluded from those river negotiations as well.
0: Speaking of the tribes, I know there's also this additional layer of American Indian treaty rights. What do treaty rights say about how much water from the Colorado River Basin should go to tribes?
4: It wasn't until the early 1900s that the U.S. Supreme Court recognized that tribes in the Colorado River Basin had reserved water rights. Essentially, that meant that these tribes had the right to use Colorado River water to meet the needs of their reservation. But how much water is that? That wasn't clarified until the 1960s, when the Supreme Court adopted a standard that said tribes get as much water as they would need to irrigate their land. By this point, Lakes Powell and Mead are built and they're filling with water for the states to use. And the tribes are going to court to figure out how much of that water is theirs. Now, at this point, it's estimated that the tribes hold rights to use a quarter of what flows through the Colorado River. That's more than what Arizona gets. And this amount is only expected to grow as more tribes figure out how much water is theirs to use.
0: And what are the tribes then asking for right now as the water situation gets more dire?
4: Because the river is drying up, the states have to renegotiate how to manage the river in a new climate. Those new rules have to be adopted by 2026. So the negotiating of those rules have unofficially already started and are expected to officially start soon. And the tribes want to be included in this process, recognized as sovereign governments and as equals to the states. Lorelei Cloud is a member of the Southern Ute Tribal Council and a leader of the Water and Tribes Initiative. Here she is speaking at a recent event at the University of Colorado Boulder.
5: We've been stewards of this water for such a long
4: time, and we need to make sure that we're always in the conversations of how much water that we are using to make sure that we all can have sustainable water. Cloud grew up on the Southern Ute Reservation in southwest Colorado with no running water. Native American households are more likely to lack piped water services than any other racial group. So a big part of why the tribes want this formal seat at the negotiation table on Colorado River policy is to make changes that can mean clean water for their members.
0: There really is an interesting new wrinkle now. And by that, I mean that for the first time, the U.S. has a Native American Secretary of the Interior, Deb Hallin. Did the tribal members you talked to say if this changes anything?
4: Yeah, I spoke with Manuel Hart, the chairman of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe in the Four Corners region.
1: We have Secretary Holland, who's a Native American from the Pueblo tribe, and she understands the region here. She comes from this region, so she knows what we're feeling and what we're going through. So that is a plus on our side.
4: Hart said he feels an overall shift, that the states and the federal government are listening to tribes more now on the issue of water. The states have said tribes will be included in the upcoming negotiations, but promises aren't enough for these tribes. They want to see legal change from the federal government to ensure their inclusion.
0: Okay, so let's play. What if a formal shortage is declared? What's the plan? I mean, is there one?
4: It's unclear what those states in the Upper Colorado River Basin will do if they aren't able to send enough water to the downstream states. And that's a big problem because Brad Udall, the water and climate scientist, says there's a chance the Colorado River system could reach that crossroads in the next five years with the way things are going with the hydrology.
1: That will be a day of reckoning for the Upper Basin and, frankly, I think you probably never ever want to get there. You want to cut demands or have an agreement or somehow not get into a violation of that where all of a sudden all bets are off on
4: how it gets resolved. What could happen is the newest water users, with water rights that are less senior, could be cut off from the river, or all water users are cut back an equal amount so more water can flow downstream. But a formal shortage might never happen. The upper basin states could possibly successfully argue in court that they're not at fault for the drop in the river, that it's climate change, not overdevelopment or anything like that.
0: Interesting argument. I mean, are there any Colorado River management negotiations on the calendar right now, or are we in a wait-and-see moment?
4: Informal negotiations have already started between states and water commissioners, but formal negotiations don't have a set start date just yet.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Michael Elizabeth Sackis, climate and environment reporter for Colorado Public Radio, based in Denver. Michael's reporting on this was part of a collaboration with the Institute for Nonprofit News on Power, Justice, and Water in the West. And we'll be talking a lot about water in 2022, so we want to hear from you, our listeners. What are your biggest concerns about water for our warming planet? Are you pessimistic? Is there technology you're hopeful about? We want to hear about it. Let us know on our sci Vox Pop app, and you can get that wherever you get your apps. And now we turn to space, because 2021 has been a happening year in space exploration, experimentation, and entertainment. NASA unveiled a new mission to Venus, We got another rover, Perseverance, safely onto the surface of Mars. The U.S. sent the aptly named DART spacecraft to smash into an asteroid, while Russia smashed up a satellite spewing debris into the path of the International Space Station. And is this finally the year we see the James Webb Space Telescope launched? Stay tuned. Then there's all the people riding, perhaps joy riding into space. Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, William Shatner, Mercury 13 veteran Mary Wally Funk. How about the first ever team of civilian astronauts which orbited the Earth for three days during SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission? Not to mention the United Arab Emirates joining the Mars Party with its first mission to the Red Planet. Who would have thunk? Whew. Let me catch my breath after all and introduce my star-studded cast of space journalists to talk through this year's news beyond the stratosphere. Brendan Burns, space reporter for WMFE in Orlando, Florida. Great to have you, Brendan. It's great to be here, Ira. Miriam Kramer, space reporter for Axios. She's based in Nashville. Hey there, Miriam.
5: Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me.
0: Nice to have you. And Lauren Grush, space reporter for The Verge. She joins us from Austin. Welcome back, Lauren. Lauren.
3: Thanks for having me,
0: and happy Friday. Happy Friday. Let me, Speaking of which, let me invite all of our listeners to vote for the biggest or most important space news this year, or stuff that we, we missed. What, what, what do you think was big in, in the year for space news? Give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844-SciTalk, or you can tweet us at SciFi. Miriam, first thing, let's talk about people in space, on commercial spacecraft. And, you know, I just went through a list Of the tests and launches we saw putting people with all experience levels high above the ozone, you made a whole podcast about one of those missions, the Inspiration4 mission from SpaceX. What made this such a groundbreaking story in your mind?
5: Yeah. Well. Um, so. Yeah. Thank you. The the plug. My the second season of How It <laughs> Happened right on Axios uh, <laughs> is all about the Inspiration for mission. Um, and for me, I think the thing that really caught my eye with the mission was just sort of how different it felt than many of the other uh, crewed launches that we've been seeing. So. The ones that get the big headlines tend to be, you know, the big NASA launches, the cosmonauts going up on Soyuz, um, SpaceX flying astronauts to the space station. But for this one, I mean, this was a group of relatively ordinary people that were sent up to space for three days and lived in a tiny tin can all together. They were complete strangers before the mission happened, um, and then they, you know, went through this incredibly. A uh, quick astronaut training and, and managed to fly and do it safely. So it was, I, I think, one of those moments where you can look at what the future of of space and space flight in particular uh, might be.
0: Mm-hmm. Lauren, and on top of what Miriam's been saying, there was a big year for space tourism. I mean, in July, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Virgin Galactic head Richard Branson, you had various celebrities all going into space or nearly to space (laughs) uh, (laughs) right
3: yes you've you've actually touched on a big ongoing debate within the space community but yes i'd actually say this is the year that probably space tourism crossed into the public mainstream more so than ever i mean for me and my colleagues here on the channel right now you know we've been covering Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic for years and they've always been proclaiming that their first human space flights are just around the corner. Just they'll be later this year, they'll be later this year and then they keep getting pushed back yeah. and pushed back. But then finally this year we actually saw them send their founders into space, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. And obviously they got a lot of attention because they were billionaires themselves. And that, you know, it uh ignited a lot of conversations about, you know, whether or not these trips are worth it, you know, whether these billionaires should be doing this with their time. It was definitely a very um, volatile time, I would say, for the space industry, but also a really Mm -hmm. big milestone and one that we've been waiting for for a really long time.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios talking about space travel with uh, your questions, our, n- our number eight four four seven two four eight two five five, Brendan, uh, meanwhile on the Space Coast, you had launches of crewed spacecraft again for the first time since the discontinuation of the shuttle program in 2011. Why is this such a big deal?
6: yeah this was this was a welcome addition to uh, to the space coast we We miss seeing our our humans leave the planet from uh, <laughs> from our backyard here. <laughs> and it, it's it's real nice now. I mean, I, I hate to say it. Uh, use the word routine because spaceflight definitely is not routine. but let me say spaceflight is definitely consistent (laughs) now from florida it seems like every six months we have uh humans coming back or 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 leaving this planet um and this is i mean this is super important right i mean we're we're back to flying astronauts again it's been almost a decade uh between the last space shuttle launch and uh spacex's dm uh uh, mission uh that sent uh, bob and doug and and now we're Getting every six months, crews of four heading up to the space station and another crew of four coming back down. Real and great to see.
0: And we also had our first splashdown, didn't we, in a long time?
6: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you'll recall, Ira, that the space shuttle landed. Uh, <laughs> they landed uh, at the space shuttle landing facility, uh, sometimes here in Florida and sometimes elsewhere. But, yeah, it splashed down off the coast of Florida. And uh, and then those astronauts come back, and, and sometimes they go to Kennedy Space Center. Often uh, they head out to... Uh, Back to Johnson Space Center. But, yeah, the capsules splashdown down off of Florida, which is really cool.
0: Let me let me invite our callers, uh, remind them uh, that our phone number is 844-724-8255. If you'd like to join us and talk about what your favorite space moments are, 844-SciTalk. Uh, we're talking about the year in review in space uh, with, with our guests who have a lot, of, a lot of space knowledge. Brendan Byrne from WMFE in Orlando, Miriam Kramer from Axios, and Lauren Grush. From The Verge. So we have to take a break. Stay with us. We'll be right back with lots more space talk. Stay with us. Hey, Ira here with an exciting message. Science Friday currently has a dollar for dollar donation match in effect. This means that any donation made through December 31st will be doubled, including yours. Now, I don't have to tell you that the need for Science Friday is stronger than ever. So please head over to sciencefriday.com/support to make a gift. We depend on the generosity of fans and listeners. Again, that's sciencefriday.com/support and thanks. You're listening to Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're rounding up 2021 space headlines with some of this out-of-world space reporters that we have going with us. There, really from out of this world. (laughs) WMFE in Orlando's Brendan Byrne, Miriam Kramer of Axios, and Lauren Grush from The Verge. Our number, 844-724-8255. And as always, when we talk about space, there are so many people that want to get in on the conversation, and we love that. So let's go to uh, Germantown, Wisconsin, with uh, Malachi. Is that correct? Uh, It's Malachi. Malachi. Go ahead. So I was wondering, with all these anti-satellite missile tests, uh, at what point do we have to start actually worrying about Kessler syndrome? Uh, You know, and space debris in Mm. general. Yeah, I've seen the movie. (laughs) Yeah, uh, let's let's talk about that. The Russians—they exploded one of their satellites. Did they not?
3: Yes, it was um, the worst Monday morning for every space reporter here. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Fill us in. Yeah,
3: (laughs) so essentially, what they did was they conducted an anti-satellite test, or what is known as an ASAT test, and they sent a kinetic missile to destroy one of their own satellites in orbit. And these are pretty widely condemned by the space community because it, it did exactly what we knew it would do. It created thousands of pieces of debris in Earth orbit. And something to keep in mind, these pieces of debris aren't just floating up there, they're moving at many thousands of miles per hour, and they can't be controlled, right? So if they were to run into an active satellite, that could potentially damage or destroy a, a functioning satellite in orbit. And so, um, what our caller brings up is uh, the Kessler syndrome, which is gets batted around a lot. And it's this idea that that's going to eventually create this cascading effect of space debris that's just going to make uh, low Earth orbit um, unusable. You know, I'm not sure I necessarily think that's the future we're headed toward, but I think we are working, we're looking at a future where. We're not sure where everything is in space all the time. We have a lot of different opinions of where everything is, and the more we add to that environment, the more uh, confusing that becomes and harder to understand if our our spacecraft is safe or not. And I think that's the bigger concern and the future that we're headed toward.
0: Brenda, does does everybody do this? I remember years ago when the Chinese blew up one of their own satellite. Yeah,
6: um, the, this, this has been done before. Um, the Chinese have done it. Um, India has also done it. Um, I, you probably know this, Ira, but it's not really a good idea to blow things up in space. Um, you think? As, as you think? Lauren, as, yeah, as, as Lauren <laughs> outlined the reasons for it. Um, you know, I think one thing that was really interesting that came out of this ASAT test was that, you know, the, the U.S. largely condemned this. Russia downplayed the issue. But at a recent National Space Council meeting, um, the Department of Defense basically came out and said we have to put an end to this, and and that's that was, you know, that was a, a kind of an, a novel thing for someone from the DoD to say because usually we want to reserve these kind of weapons for ourselves or these tests for ourselves. Uh, so the fact that the US is coming out there and saying, you know, we need to put an end to this, mm. uh, shows the importance of it. And and we've seen other leaders come out. Uh, the head of the European Space Agency recently talked about uh, how we really do need to start getting a handle on space traffic uh, because it, it could very well be an issue for mm. not just the astronauts on the ISS, but as Lauren mentioned, all of these space-based assets that we have out there, our, our GPS systems, our communication systems, all of that stuff is it could possibly be threatened by any sort of debris, um, and especially debris that's caused intentionally.
0: Mm-hmm. Marion, before the break, we, we talked about the big leaps in human space travel this year. Tourists, the civilian astronauts, Florida launches with some help from SpaceX. All of this seems to me to suggest private space flight has really come into its own this year. Is Is that going to benefit the scientific community that needs access to space?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think that with more uh, providers, more folks launching like SpaceX, like whoever it might be, Um, you will get the chance to have more scientific instruments flying. I mean, there's even talk right now of a privately sent mission to Venus uh, that's working with scientists to actually figure out exactly the questions they want to answer and then using sort of an off-the-shelf satellite to try to answer them by sending it to Venus. So it's opening up this new possible regime of exploration scientifically and, you know, uh, human-wise as well. Um, But I think that it can only mean good things in many ways for science you know. to even get in on the action too.
0: And of course, the, uh, the International Space Station is on its last legs, so to speak. It's been up there for quite some time. It's not going to last forever. And NASA has been looking for private alternatives for future space stations, correct?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So um, most people think that the space station will have to end by uh, 2030 at the latest, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Um, But right now, NASA is in the process of basically trying to figure out uh, where their astronauts are going to go in low Earth orbit. Uh, the after and before even the space mm. station ends, hopefully before. So they put out this call for private space station ideas and they just recently awarded some uh, multi-million dollar contracts to three different teams of, uh, of private companies. So it should be really interesting to see what designs they come up with, who gets funding. I mean, it's, it's going to be a yeah. pretty uh, volatile couple of years, I think
0: on the other hand if if, uh, if we're talking space we're over the radar not under the flying under the radar, the Chinese are very active in building a new space station, aren't they P- Brendan
6: uh yeah they are um and uh you know I don't follow it too closely um they also don't share too many details about that but um but yeah they they've got a space station and have a crew on board um and uh yeah the, their civil their civil space um uh, they're they're Civil Space Station is is coming together and, and uh, yeah. it is interesting. And that, that's also another driving force for, you know, some U.S. politicians to say, hey, we need to make sure that we can we have something up there uh, for, as Miri mentioned, you know, the end of life for the International Space Station, which will be this decade. So uh, having those commercial platforms up there for us to to do science but you know also signal to you know an adversarial country like China hey we still have a presence in space is, is very important for the US
0: Let's go to uh, Mark in Aurora Illinois. Hi Mark, welcome to Science Friday.
1: Yes, I find it interesting that when William Shatner played Captain Kirk, he was often accused of being an over the top actor and now that he's got himself into space He's been criticized for being an over-the-top spender. And here's another piece to that. I think that it's interesting that as Captain Kirk, he talked almost complacently about visiting various planets, almost as if it was like visiting the corner grocery store. But when he actually went out into space, he was almost at a loss for words, and he was on the edge of tears. Space was no longer something to be complacent about when he actually traveled into it.
0: Okay, let, let me get some comments because a lot of people ha- had had uh, opinions about whether they liked William Shatner going into space or not. Don't don't they?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I for one watched his. Commentary afterwards in real time, and I thought it was quite genuine. I will have, to, I will say though, that I believe that William Shatner was a guest on that flight, so I don't actually think he spent any money on his ticket. Um, Blue mm-hmm. Origin has been inviting celebrity guests onto their um, missions to, you know, get a get some hype around them, and I think they. Mm-hmm. Unlike mere mortals like us they had they don't have to pay anything.
6: <laughs> wow. Although kid. if they want to take a journalist I'm sure one of us would be more than Yeah. I do that, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I, that's but, an old uh, story. But
3: don't don't send me a bill cuz I can't afford it.
0: <laughs> let's go to let's go to Mars a, a very a place a lot of people to be because I called it a Mars party before in my introduction, because <laughs> there are a lot of folks from different countries on Mars. You know, China sent their own mission to Mars this year. They have a rover there. The United Arab Emirates has a Hope orbiter, uh, you know, on in Mars orbit. Wow. I mean, suddenly people you didn't think or countries you, you would not expect to, to actually find interest in Mars are, are, are all doing it. What do you think, Brendan?
6: I think it's awesome. Um, I I really followed the the Hope Orbiter. Um, it was the first interplanetary mission for a, a brand new space agency out of the UAE, um, and it sent back some really stunning images. I, I I recall if I recall correctly, because what is time these days. Um, I think it was the first one to get there, um, and just sent back these. Uh, incredible photos and and it's really collecting some amazing science that um that they're sharing with the science community. Um so the Hope orbiter was really cool and of course there's Perseverance. I mean, who who doesn't love a NASA rover uh on the surface of Mars and and the little helicopter that hitched a ride with an Ingenuity. I think uh yeah. all of us are, are rooting for that helicopter um you know, that little stowaway. So it, it, it Mars years are always so exciting uh in space and it was, you know, exponentially exciting with, with three missions arriving this year.
0: Speaking of the Space Coast, let's go to Jacksonville, Florida. Ha, ah, Welcome to Science Friday.
7: Hi, thank you. I just wanted to give a shout-out, as we always try to remember those who have come before us, and Commander David Scott, who was the commander for Apollo 15, w- drove the lunar rover vehicle, discovered the Genesis Rock, and proved Galileo's theorem that a falcon feather... Can fall at the same velocity as a metal hammer on the moon. And uh, we had a 50th anniversary in San Diego, at San Diego Air and Space Museum this summer. And I think, you know, lest we forget those who, you know, really sacrificed their lives, and he also placed the astronaut thing on the moon, remembering those who had perished uh, in the space race. But I think the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15 since he's the only commander left on the Earth that walked on the Moon. I think there are four other people who walked on the Moon. But that's something, you know, for us to remember. While the commercial space programs go around the Earth, the Moon is very, very far away.
0: Very well put. Thank you for that, for that remembrance because, yes, we, you know, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. And uh, uh, our, our panelists certainly are, are aware of the history of, of, of the space program, correct?
6: Yeah, oh, yeah. I have the yeah. chance to chat with David Scott, and um, he's, he's very happy to talk about that mission, <laughs> even 50 years on. So, um, yeah, the, that the, was, the foundation.
0: I just watched a video of that the other day when I was researching this, and, and it was an incredible demonstration of a hammer. You know, this metal hammer and a feather being dropped to the moon surface at the same time. It's like mind blower (laughs) because, you know, it should happen. But you're you're sitting here saying, I hope this happens. I hope this happens. (laughs) Let's uh, let's go back. Let's uh, go back to the phones and let's see who we. uh, Oh, yeah. Let's let's talk about this, because this was a big topic earlier in the year. Uh, Shannon Crown uh, Cornwell, Connecticut. Hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Sean, go ahead.
8: Hi. Hi there. Um, yeah. So, um, before I get into my topic, I, uh, you guys had a really great conversation so far. Uh, I know you mentioned the Russian anti satellite uh, test that happened. I don't think anybody mentioned the Chinese hypersonic missile test, which allegedly went around the Earth's orbit, and they weren't too transparent about that. So, that's another thing that's going on in low Earth orbit. But, my topic in particular was there were a lot of uh, stories about UFOs this year and it seems like the consciousness <laughs> the national consciousness on this issue has gone from something that would be considered to be tabloid fodder to something that's well it's already been admitted to, by the government to be something that is credible it's long been alleged that the u.s government and different corporations have a number of unacknowledged special access projects mm-hmm. that deal with this issue from the mundane to the exotic so i I just was wondering what you guys' opinion was on the UFO situation.
0: Okay, before we get into UFOs, a quick reminder. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Who wants to tackle UFOs? Who wants to wade into that?
6: Um,
5: it's UAPs.
3: <laughs> That's right. They have,
0: changed, they have changed the name of the UAP. Miriam, tell us about that.
5: Oh, boy. Um.
0: What, what is the, Lauren, what is a UAP?
3: UAP? Uh, you know what? I've actually been on book leave. I've forgotten. Somebody enlighten me. i forgot what the acronym means.
5: It's it's unidentified aerial phenomenon. I yes,
7: exactly, exactly. But yeah. but
6: is it aliens, Miriam? Is it
5: aliens? I, you know what, Brendan? My favorite line. It's never aliens. Um, it's never yay! <laughs> so so I I just want to say like. I think UFO, the UFO like discourse is really fascinating and so interesting. But I personally see it as more of a national security story and less of a space story, at least right I now. I see it as a transportation story. It's an air traffic story,
3: not a space <laughs> air story. Story. And by insinuating that it's a space story, we're insinuating that it's aliens. Which Miriam is it? Aliens. <laughs> It's never
0: we'll, we'll, we'll take her off. The, <laughs> let's, let's take her off the hot seat.
5: Okay. Let,
1: let's move on to
0: a story that really has an, an international impact. And that is, speaking of impact, there was no pun intended. I'm talking about the DART mission to deflect, sort of push an asteroid away from a potentially dangerous orbit that uh, launched just last month. How will it get to be? You know, how long is it going to be out there? And what, and what exactly is its mission? Who would like to tackle that one?
6: Well, I, can, I I, I can told jump. you earlier. Oh, go, go for, ahead, go for it,
3: Lauren. <laughs> um, no, I, it's just, it's, it's the, I love it because of its simplicity, right? It's essentially we are going to push or boop an asteroid off of its path uh, just ever so slightly just to see if we can actually do it. And the idea is that we would use a similar scenario if we were to ever Uh, Find an asteroid that could potentially be Mm. catastrophic heading towards Earth someday, and it's a very simple task But it really could have dramatic effects Um, But the target that we're doing with DART is one that poses absolutely no threat to Earth It's actually an asteroid moonlit that's orbiting around another asteroid and we're going to to ram into it with a spacecraft uh, one, <laughs> one of uh, my sources called it an intentional smithering event and <laughs> uh, I truly love that and, and yeah we're just going to see how that affects that moonlet's um, orbit and then if that works then potentially we could try it on a on a hazardous asteroid someday
0: let me before i have about a minute left before i don't want to let the year go by without we talking about the james webb space telescope that may oh. be may be finally <laughs> going to launch
6: i mean is it going to get up there brendan what do you think i i sure hope so because i am i am sick and tired of being nervous about this mission <laughs> it just it needs to <laughs> launch at this point and i i think my colleagues will agree um it's just it's so complex and you know, it, every, there's so many things that could go wrong. Everything needs to go right. So I'm happy that, that the teams are taking their time. But it looks like we're, we're moving towards that. And I cannot wait to see uh, some of the first science that comes back from that, you know, this, this, just brilliant yeah. observatory.
0: And the launch date? Do we have one or scheduled mm. sometime by cr- the- by Christmas time, maybe?
6: Oh, it should be the
5: 22nd right yeah. now. I think that's what, mm. where we're at at the moment. So right. hopefully yeah. hopefully before Christmas there for all go. of hopefully. our present
6: Present for uh, everybody. Says, please. Yeah. But
5: no, <laughs> that's
3: knowing about- NASA, it'll be a holiday
6: launch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. That's in the middle a- of the night. <laughs> that's about all the time we have. I have
0: to put our own po- space party to bed here. Brendan Byrne, a space reporter for WMFE in Orlando. Miriam Kramer, space reporter for Axios in Nashville. Lauren Grush, space reporter for The Verge in Austin. Thank you all, and happy holidays to all of you. Happy holidays. If you can, in case you missed any part of the program, you'd like to hear it again, of course you can subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday and say hi to us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Send us a voice memo on the sci Vox Pop app. And, of course, we also like to hear from you, SciFry at ScienceFriday.com. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato in New York.